Hello and welcome to the Guru Live session on Factual TV Storytelling. I'm Emma Morgan and in this session we will explore how practitioners bring contributors and their stories to life across the factual landscape in documentary, specialist factual and popular documentary. As opposed to these really unpopular documentaries. <laughs> Our panellists include Amy Flanagan, who is the Creative Director of Factual at Expectation Entertainment, Editor Will Gilby, whose credits include After the Screaming Stops and Mo Farah, No Easy Mile, and the director behind Gun Number no. 6 and the detectives James Newton. Um, and I'm Emma Morgan, I'm one of the members of the BAFTA TV committee and I'm Creative Director of Factual at Firecracker Films. So, um, I think I've got to read out your bios, just so that everyone can know exactly who you are. Um, Will is a BAFTA-winning editor and screenwriter. He has edited over 20 feature films and documentaries and written several screenplays, four of which have been produced and released theatrically. He has directed two award-winning short films and served as a second unit director on four feature films. He is currently developing two television series and preparing to direct his first film. His credits include Bross, After the Screaming Stops, Mo Farah, No Easy Mile, The Borderlands, A Lonely Place to Die, and Rise of the Foot Soldier. Amy Flanagan uh, is creative director at Factual at Expectation, as I have said. She was previously at Channel 4 as deputy head of Factual. While there, she commissioned a diverse range of award-winning factual television, including The Murder Detectives, which won a BAFTA, 24 Hours in Police Custody, Hunted, The Romanians Are Coming, which won an RTS, a Grierson, and a Broadcast Award, Royal Marines Commando School, My Son, The Jihadi, which also won a BAFTA, and she also set up the cutting-edge director scheme for new talent. Previously, she worked with The Garden Productions, making BAFTA award-winning Bedlam and Keeping Britain Alive, the RTS award-winning first series of 24 Hours in A&E, and other credits include the, the, the Victorian Sex Explorer with Rupert Everett, The Artful Codgers, Last Days of the Raj, and Felton Sings. James Newton um, is also a BAFTA-winning director who makes bold and distinctive films with a very individual style. With two BAFTA nominations in 2016, Best Factual Series and Television Craft Director Factual, his film The Detectives was described as brilliant by The Independent, essential viewing by The Garden, and in 2019, James won a BAFTA for Gun Number no. 6, which we'll be looking at in a moment. His talent and passion for documentary cinematography was first recognised by a Kodak Commercials Award in 2006, and... Um, after winning a David Lean scholarship, James graduated from the National Film and Television School in 2007 with an MA in Documentary. So you've got a brilliant panel here today who we will be talking about three separate films with. And towards the end of the, after, of the session, we are going to give you at least 15 minutes to ask the panel your own questions. So get your thinking caps on. Lots of really challenging, penetrating questions because you've got them on the spot here. But um, also take this opportunity to really think about craft and sort of tips and insights into the actual process because this is a unique opportunity to get inside their brains and experience. So uh, 
We're just going to start with a little bit of an introduction about storytelling in the broader sense. Um, and as a, both a commissioner and a creative director, Amy, how do you identify a good story when someone is pitching it to you or you're trying to come up with a, an idea to sell yourself? That's a million dollar question, isn't it? What's a good story? I think there are two things that can often get a bit confused and there's a difference between a really good story and really good storytelling. So when I was a commissioner, but also as a producer or creative director, I'm always thinking about those two things together. What's the story and what's the best, most innovative, uh, refreshing or creative way of telling that story? What form can you, can you best tell it in? And I think just, on, just in terms of story, um, for me, again, in both roles, I think a good story has to be bigger than the sum of its parts. It has to say something about the world, about how we're living. Um, you know, I used to get pitched, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of stories, as you can imagine. And lots of smaller stories are really interesting. It's not that they're not interesting or the people involved aren't interesting, but if they felt quite niche or didn't have uh, other layers to them or didn't, I didn't feel that they would resonate with viewers on, you know, on a human level or on a, on a number of bigger levels, we would never commission them. So I think stories that have a bigger meaning to them, um, you know, and all sorts of things. I mean, for me, a really good story, it's really, it's really important that there are lots of surprises in there. I don't want to hear a story that I already know. Um, uh, obviously, kind of stories or territories where there's lots of drama. Um, uh, and also, what's the form? So, you know, um, you know like Gun Number 6 is sort of an interesting example of uh, a story where we're really kind of uh, anaesthetised to knife crime. There have been hundreds of documentaries about knife crime, but this, the form of this film and I'm sure that was you, you would know more than me but I, mean, I imagine the form was part of the pitch part of how it got oh, commissioned yeah, completely. because being able to tell a story like that in that particular form mm -hmm. suddenly made it feel more dramatic and more interesting do you think there's also I, I've been in lots of pitches when the particularly your old boss always used to say yeah. why now yes why right yeah. now that there's a sort of certain sense of currency yes that it wouldn't have been relevant last year or yes. next year. It feels like it's really documenting yes. where we are. Definitely, I think that you know today. that's uh, uh, exactly. I think it has to say something about the world and the way we live now. Uh, and also, and again, like I was just saying about a film that can offer surprises. Um, you know, there are lots of documentaries that are made about the same subject matter, but you have to be able to say something that's new. Um, and you have to be able to surprise the viewer, and that can be in the form, and therefore you're, you know, you're getting the audience to engage in a different way, or you actually have something new to say. Um, so I think both of those things are really key. Excellent. So James, you then get brought on as a director. Yes. And someone's had a really brilliant conversation with the commissioner, and they've worked out a fantastic device or precinct for, to explore that tells a really important story of why now, and they hand it over to you as the director possibly in a big chunky piece of paper or maybe a bit of tape and you then have to take that and, and shape it. What, 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 do you, what attracts you to ideas and, and then what's the process for you to start thinking, how am I going to plot out this story? Well, um, straight away, does the story grip me? You know, is it something that sounds really exciting? Has someone else done something about it before? Is there something really interesting in it? And then I start sort of breaking it down. You know, how would I make it? Where are the interesting points in it? Where's the drama? You know, ideally, I want to find something as dramatic as possible that feels got like a real heartbeat. Exactly what Amy says, it needs to feel like now. 
I never really understood what that meant. It used to really annoy me. You go to see commissioners and you'd think this isn't the best idea since sliced bread. And they go, well, it's not relevant they now. Do. <laughs> but it actually, it does mean something because you yeah. need something to be in the conscious or yeah. you're reflecting something that's happening now. You want your audience to think, oh, wow, this is interesting. Take on what's happening now. It's relevant. Yeah, exactly. It feels relevant to now. So you're going to get an audience to it. Um, and then I, I really interrogate it. I really think about how I'm going to make it. So... What is it? Is it talking heads? There's going to be lots of observational stuff. Is there going to be a scene in it? Or what scenes can I get that are going to surprise me? You know, I really like scenes where you think, fucking hell, I shouldn't be filming this. Or I shouldn't be here. And then you think, okay, that's really good. When I did detectives, I thought, how can we do that with such a difficult, sensitive crime, you know, about sexual uh, crime and think about it to approach it in a way that hadn't been done before. And that was sort of exciting. And so, you know. And how much... Like, I think we're going to talk about it more later, but that you plan and plan and plan, you know, fail to plan, plan to fail, and then you get in the moment and stuff starts to happen. And there's one scene, I think, particularly when the wallpaper came off the wall. Oh, yeah. And I right. always looked at that and thought, oh, did they know? How did they plan? Because it's so beautifully shot. Do, do you want to just quickly describe Yeah, that so then? I did a series called uh, Detectives, which is a following a new group of detectives set up to look at sexual crime. And there was a bloke um, who was connected to Jimmy Savile and 20 other women came forward and said that he'd sexually abused them when they were children. And he had a flat above a record shop that he owned, and he would get kids to come in, or girls to come in, and he'd give them records, but then he would take them upstairs. And because the crime was so long ago, it was in the 70s, you need to have evidence that these girls were in that room or something happened. There isn't any DNA, there isn't anything else. And a lot of the, these women remembered that they would write their names on the wall or telephone numbers because back in those days they had a landline and people would draw and doodle and stuff like that. And so she'd mentioned it just off the cuff. Not, not, it was just like a little bit of it in a video interview. And then this police officer said, we should go and check it out. I had no idea what was going to happen. And yeah, luckily they started taking it off on one wall and nothing happened. And then they did it on the other wall and then it was like, and then I could see the colour coming out of his face as he realised all these names started coming up. I mean, shit, loads of names. They're all really it's an unbelievable childish scene. Mm. sort of handwriting. And there's even a picture of Ray, because he's quite an ugly chap with quite yeah. crazy hair. Yeah. <laughs> and it even says with an arrow, Ray, you know, and one of our lead characters, uh, sorry, one of the lead contributors, um, Kathy's name's written on it. Yeah. Kathy was here. And so all of a sudden it's like, wow, it's she's a case. She's, a case. Mm. she's not lying. Yeah, there's one most memorable, but it's very visual as well. Yeah, I don't know what I mean. I you know, didn't plan it. <laughs> 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 you, you, you do. <laughs> but that's the sort of synchronicity, isn't it, of both those things. And so, um, Will, as an editor, obviously your main job is once the content has started to be yes. recorded and you, and you can come in at what process, but... Where do you? Where does your job start? And do you get? Do you quite often talk to your directors before they've even shot anything? And so, to, just talk us through. Well, your there's different ways and different joys, but I do feel like definitely listen to you guys. Like the hardest thing probably in the world is getting a project over the line and getting that green light. And I <laughs> never have to do that. So in certain terms, I avoid, you know, the real busy work of finding a story, you know, pinning it down, finding the, you know, building the access, all that sort of stuff. So sometimes you can come in and. You're brought in very early on, which uh, with Brass, I was very early on in the process. Literally, as they started shooting, I was in an edit suite. Um, they were in America for a bit. And then I think it was initially just going to be a sort of almost like a concert film. It was going to be, it was, I think it was, just, uh, it was them. And the last sort of half an hour was going to be them in concert. And it was 
the sort of the focus changed as we realized we had really good access and they were fantastic characters. Uh, but then something like the Mo Farrell one, I was brought in, they'd been following him for I think a year and a half. They'd done an hour long BBC thing. They wanted to do an hour and a half actual film documentary of it and they kept filming him for another five months at the Olympics and that just came on board knowing where nothing is and just had three weeks to put it all together. Three, three weeks? Three weeks, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we all just went yeah. wrong. How long, is, was it? how long was it? It's 90 minutes. Wow. That's yeah, I, I, I don't know how that happened, but it was, yeah, it was... How much, yeah. how much footage did he have? I mean, what was good is the guy who directed it, um, he was, he, I think he won a student BAFTA photo team when he was younger, so he, <laughs> had, he knew his so way he, around, <laughs> he knew his way around the footage, so he could wow. at least say, edit In. a 15 minute section about this and just throw me hours of relevant footage rather than me trawling through everything and looking for it. So he did a sink pool or something. Before. Kind of, yeah. Right. I don't think any, any broadcaster hear that. No, 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 no. Like, he does. did it in mean, three weeks. I mean, even if you do four months, that still often ends up being weekends, late yes. nights, and what yeah. have you, as you start pushing wow. towards the deadline. Yeah. I remember freaking wow. out an Uber driver working on Bross on a Sunday, and I called an Uber at 3.20 in the morning, and sort of got in, and he was like, oh, where have you been? And I was like, I've just been at work. He's like, on a Sunday, what time do you start? And I was like, well, nine. He obviously thought I meant 9 p.m. Yeah. I said, like, no, no, it was 9 a.m. this morning. And he just, he gave me this sort of back look a couple of times and just chastised me for, you know. Did he say he thought about being an Uber driver? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as we've been talking about um, Bros, why, um, why don't you talk to that a bit more and introduce it? Okay, yes, I don't know who's seen the film or not. It's about two uh, identical twin brothers who were... Uh, for about a two or three year period, 1999 to 1991 maybe, was suddenly very big and very successful and they had a couple of very big hip hop records. And then uh, they broke up, uh, lost all their money and uh, sort of didn't really talk for 25 years. Um, they kind of fell out completely and they sort of, this is, a, this is a documentary basically following them as they prepare to play uh, the comeback gig at the O2. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the picture of the film, I guess, yeah. But they ended up just being really exciting characters um, to follow around with. They're very earnest, very open, very truthful. <laughs> and hilarious. And, and yeah, very funny <laughs> as well, yeah, in the best possible way. Um, when did you know you were going to get gold with it? Uh, pr pretty early on. Like I, when I was, I was saying to you earlier, when I was like 10, when they were big, um, I've got two older brothers who are into heavy metal. So like, bros was a dirty word in our house. <laughs> yeah. um, and when someone said, do you want to do the bros documentary? It was like, no. Um, but then I eventually did, uh, I think, you know, and then I sort of came in and the footage started to come back and I was just like, okay, goodness, this is, uh, these guys are fantastic. It was, you know, it was really good. They're obviously very open, they're very earnest. Um, and, you know, and it's sort of started to put that together and people who were cynical about the project, I uh, started to be able to create a timeline of some of the best stuff and people, you bring people in and suddenly show them, okay, we've got something here. So quite early on, it started to, but then even at that stage, when you're looking at all this great stuff, no idea what the shape's going to be. Right. You know, in dot making, it's right. such an exploratory right. process. It takes so much to, it's like, it's almost like the last four weeks is really fun right. because you're moving around everything that you've already worked on and everything up till then is just trying to whittle catch up down. on this, yeah. whittle down this just right. ocean of footage that constantly feels like it's going to overwhelm you. And yeah, and then the last four weeks is actually okay. We can start really building the story. Yeah. Scenes, don't you? That you're like, oh, I really want to yeah. get that in, but I've got any room for it. Do so they it's a look through the edit, or? 
Well, I, what's that, sorry? Did they shoot through the edit? Or yes, totally, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was a lot. There's different types of monster interviews throughout, so there's the very sort of yes. uh, studio so, shot one, and then there's, there's various ones of it at home. How, when, at what points were, during the so edit were what, you going so back So one of the things early on, when the first the film started out, early on, they had a list of celebrity names who they wanted to get interviews with. And one of the things we sort of figured out is a lot of them weren't getting back to us, but <laughs> never mind. And what became clear very early on was that they, we could use them to set the guys up. And then after that, it was just going to be the brothers talking. Mm -hmm. So basically, every time they did an actuality scene, they go to a location. Uh, let's say they go to the Conker's house. You might maybe get them up against the wall at the end and shoot an interview. And then, you sh and then the last thing pretty much shot was, a, I think, a five-hour and a six-hour master interview of each of them. And then, obviously, that is what you, you know, construct the spine, really, with, with all the pulls from there. But you've got but you the interviews. an assembly already. Yeah, we had, yeah. like, a rough assembly. But that as soon as you get that interview, you're like, oh, yeah. my. And, and also, the other thing, the nice thing about shooting that last is you obviously know which footage is really strong. You know what's really and good. And then you can push them in the master interview to obviously talk about that. They're so key, though, the master interviews. Yeah. With, um, with detectives, we, for legal reasons, we couldn't film with any of the victims because, obviously, if they say anything before their trial, that could be used against them. So we were watching, we had all this police stuff, we had all these sort of observational scenes, but none of it seemed to work or have any emotion until we had these interviews and put them in. To just sort of, to get into people's so minds. So those? Right at the end, right at the end. It's the last thing usually to happen. Because you could just, observational scenes, you need someone to explain it, and if they're not doing it in the scene, you, you need to get these other thoughts in. And yeah. It's so obvious, but sometimes mm. you forget. You yeah. Know. So those building blocks. Um, is there anything else you want to ask, Will, about that? Because uh, I mean, with, with the director, with yeah, the, what was the viewing like? Yeah. The first one, exactly what I wanted to know. <laughs> the first one of with, with Rob Bros. Yeah. So what happened is uh, Matt and Luca brothers, and the guy who directed this, Joe and Leo, is the guy who produced it. They're brothers, so they flew over to LA, and we're going to have a brothers to brothers screening, and no one else is going to be in it. Okay, uh, and that's basically how they did it. Um, and the boys loved the film, and then yeah, they, did they so, laugh? Often, I know. No, I don't think so, no. When did they realise it was funny? Um, I think reactions started to come back, you know, fairly quickly that people sort of enjoyed the comedy. And there's maybe, I don't know, I can't speak for them, but maybe there's a week or so where they might have felt like people taking the piss Weird, or what right. have you. Yeah, but I think the reaction on the whole has been pretty warm, like mm. certainly in terms of reigniting people's interest mm. in bros. Um, which, and big, it's had a massive... Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they're playing, they're doing gigs again, they like take over the channel for BBC4, you know, they, they were at the National Film Awards in the BAFTAs and they're just like swamped by, everyone wants to, you know, everyone else jog on, I want to, I want to, I want to meet Bross, you know, which is, you know, kind of like when you've had that all taken away from you age like 21 or 22 yeah. and obviously they've built their own pretty successful careers, but I mean, the kind of adulation they had was, I mean, they did Wembley, they did Wembley Stadium, I think 15 nights in a row, which like no one does that. And they've had like 50, 60,000 people there every night. Probably the same 60,000 people. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but still, it's pretty good. If they're coming back. Yeah. I think that's quite a common thing. I don't know if you've found this, but when you're doing viewings with contributors afterwards, often if you're quite worried about someone's contribution or how, if there's a tone, yes. particular tone yeah. to a film, and you go and show the contributor in question, and you've done what you've always said you were going to do, and so often the contributor will be happy, and then actually it'll be a week or two afterwards when either reviewers start writing about it or they start feel differently. Their entourage or you know, you know, chief execs of organisations might start watching, and they begin to start feeling a bit different. You yes, know, it can get a bit course. hairy sometimes. I think it's very clever. Yeah, I think otherwise everyone you get all the voices in the ears and that did get a slightly mm. hopefully pure response from them. Mm. 
And you get that slight access thing when someone's got 24 or 48 hours yeah. to respond after seeing yeah. it. They do watch it and you're like, oh, all the bits you think they're going to yes, get upset never. about. And then it's, it's always something never, completely ever. different. Yeah. And you're like, oh, shit, I didn't see yes. that coming. Yeah. But, um, but then people do tw 24 hours, 48 mm. hours, suddenly go, actually, mm. that's just that one bit. And, you know, you have to negotiate that, don't you? And sometimes it's easy to help massage that. Yes, but yeah. But sometimes it's not. Yeah. I mean, we should talk about that a bit later yeah. with your yeah. film, I think, as well. Um, shall we move on to gun yeah. number okay. six? Because um, do you want to just introduce how that came about, how you got involved? And, yes. And so my exec saw a story uh, about a boy with autism who said to his mum, don't look in my drawer next to my bed when he was leaving to go to school. And she said, fine, I won't. And so she, he, she went into the room and found a gun that he'd found in the stump of a tree, which they obviously took to the police. And then they found out this gun had been connected to lots of different crimes. And so Zach Beatty had read that and thought, wow. And then he started looking into a more, contacted the forensic that look at guns. And then they found out about these 10 guns in sort of the mid-noughties that were really being used a lot in Birmingham, and because in Britain the gun laws are so so hard to get hold of guns, guns have to be used by criminals again and again. So they recirculate them or people hand them out. You know, it's, it's like a library in a weird way. And so gun number six was at that time uh, the most deadliest gun. It had been involved in 11 shootings. Um, unfortunately, three people had been murdered with this gun. Um, it was written as a treatment. And I think Zach started in sort of 2014 maybe? Were you yeah. still there? Was he? No, uh, uh, no I was being, yeah, yeah it's been going on for years. <laughs> yeah, it was like he a loves big. A lot of project, project, he? He does yeah, so it'd been going on for a long time when I came onto it. And when I got told about mm. it, I thought, wow, what an incredible, mm. you know. And have they tracked it? Have they plotted it all? They'd, well, they'd, they'd, they had a rough idea. So they, they knew some of the incidents, but didn't know everything. And his concept back then was much about getting a group of people together. So getting everyone involved into a room or getting the victims' families of each other to meet each other, because obviously the victims had no idea about each other, never met, and that was sort of the idea. But what really interested me is I thought, wow, I really want to understand who's pulling this trigger. Who are they? You know, why do they do it? As well as obviously understanding what the families went through and who these people they would kill. Uh, so that was a priority for me, yeah. So that's a really neat device, isn't it? It's one gun with this history, but actually an incredibly complex amount of different narrative tales. So how did you go about plotting out? But then before you started, did you have a really, you got your treatment, how did you script it and how much did you plan and then how much were things? So original you... idea was to try and find everyone connected to it and interview them and try and get them in the film, mm -hmm. which obviously is, you know, an ideal, ideal situation. So we had the, the, the official report that there were 11 shootings and we could, we tr you know, investigate it as much as possible. We spent two or three months finding people. We found Quite a lot of the people who connected to the gun who had used it, but surprisingly, they didn't want to talk to the BBC <laughs> or be on television. And the guys connected to the murders were obviously in prison. Um, and a lot of them said they had never done it or didn't know anything about it. They were innocent. Yeah. And obviously then their families felt that they were innocent as well. So that's quite complicated. Um, and then we realised that, fuck, we're not going to be able to make like this film, we've got we got all the victims' families on board, which was a huge process because obviously some of these crimes had happened eight years ago, and bringing all this kind of, of trauma on. back. Well, hardly move on, but a lot of trauma yeah. back up, and we got them on board. Um, and then I started thinking about what perhaps we could do in a different way, which was basically 
find people who had used a gun and get them to re-enact it. So these were ex-offenders who had, been uh, had sort of come out the other side and doing something back to the community. Um, and that was sort of the idea, and get them to sort of get them to tell their story to help us understand the number six. This, this is apart from storytelling, you know, there, there's a big debate at the moment about duty of care in our industry. And, oh, yeah. You know, so, something like this, it's not, it's not observational. You're actually constructing something with a really powerful intent and, yes. you know, real public service remit behind it. But how did you unpack all that with those contributors afterwards? Oh, wow, yeah. It was, it was really, like, I mean, it was... So, um, the, the lady who did the psychodrama, yeah. she, within the first sort of 40 minutes... Quite a few of them got upset talking about their past lives. One of the guys, uh, Leroy Mum, had been murdered when he was young and all this stuff came out and they just weren't expecting it. So when we had lunchtime break, they were very frustrated and a little bit angry about what was happening. They didn't really understand it. Mm. And you just have to keep explaining why you're doing it. You know, we want to do this because we want to understand why people use guns. And this is a way for you to try and break that facade. You know, a lot of gang guys... It's a lot about being hard or not showing any kind of emotion. And we didn't want people to show off and we wanted people to sort of really go deep. And once they got into it in the afternoon, they were really kind of quite up for it. They wanted to go further. They want to understand more. They want to be able to sort of break this sort of barriers. And so, yeah, in the end, it was all right. But it was a bit tense at lunchtime. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move on to the next um, clip. Do you want to just introduce mm. yours as well? Because again, it's a similar it's a, thing, it's, actually. It's isn't not it? just similar, is it? That you, you've got a construct yes. that, with lots of people with quite real stories in the heart of it. So yes. you want to explain the idea. So this is from a documentary called uh, Super Kids Breaking Away from Care. And it was uh, it's a documentary with a, an amazing poet, British Ethiopian poet called Lem Sise, who was in care. He was taken into care himself when he was a baby. And um, he had a very, very troubled childhood and youth as a result. Um, and he um, uh, is now an extraordinary poet. And he uh, both writes his own poetry, but he also does works with kids in care. And when um, I met him and just thought he was one of the most charismatic, it's quite rare actually, but one of the most charismatic, fascinating people I met in a really long time. I wanted to do something with him for Channel 4 Arts, but we didn't know what to do because, okay, so he's a, there were lots of things about that subject matter that are very untelevision friendly. So care is not a sort of, you know, a subject matter that commissioners particularly want to make, want you to make films about. It's not a sort of ratings type subject matter, although it's really important. He's a poet. Um, also not a sort quite of niche. <laughs> quite niche um, and so and also the other thing about him is his life story was completely fascinating but he'd done quite a few things for the radio not for television but he'd done quite a few things about his past and he'd already found his birth mother um, and so it was in the public domain it wasn't like his own story could be the film because there was no onward narrative. So we spent months talking to him and in the end we decided to uh, film him working with a group of kids in Coventry who were all looked after kids in care in Coventry and put on a workshop, which is you know something he does all the time, put on a workshop with those kids to, uh, and 
and it's for them to write poetry about their lives and about their experience of life in care. And so he put on a series of workshops with a view to them putting a performance on at the end uh, to people who work in care, to the head of social services in Coventry, to decision makers, foster families, such as big, big audience in Coventry. And um, so the whole thing really is a construct, actually, but it's completely authentic to him and to uh, the work that he normally does. So you've got this cocktail that you're, you're constructing a story. Mm. You, you've got an area that's really mm. worth, it's, you know, a very important subject area, but you're telling all these different people's stories. Mm. And, um, but you've also got their lives on mm. You've done something mm. to make them feel like this at this moment. So yeah. how did you, in the current climate, we have a responsibility of producers yeah. to, to sort of make sure we don't just make that happen and then walk away yeah how did that all work well it's obviously like you said earlier very different when you are creating the, the world in which you're putting these contributors mm. and in this case they were in, yeah, as you can see they're incredibly vulnerable they're children or young people for starters um uh and and have had very very difficult lives so far mm. so we had a very um very thorough very long series of protocols that we worked out with Channel 4 before we started and with Coventry Council with the head of social services with the head of child services and with their head lawyer so we worked really closely together with them about and that was everything from the moment we started looking for young people to take part then we'd approach them and see if they want to take part and then um, a social worker would come with them um, to some of the filming um, and their lawyers and our lawyers were constantly monitoring their situation and their stories to see if they were both informed enough to take part, mm -hmm. but also as they started writing poetry, which started throwing up things about their past, um, that what we put in the film, in the final film, was, uh, was okay and it was responsible for certain things to go in that were powerful and moving and very difficult, mm -hmm. but there were, there were lots of other things that either we didn't feel were right to put in and or our lawyers said we couldn't put in, which is, which is absolutely right. So there's an element there, I think we were talking earlier about um, sometimes the word producing yeah. is, 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 is got a negative connotation. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's a light touch of the producer. We, oh, we don't want to overproduce this as if it's a bad thing. Whereas I sort of think sometimes with storytelling, you need to produce, 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 produce. Have the time. I think you have to produce. I think producing is incredibly important. I think you're absolutely right. It has got a really dirty word in documentary circles, but it probably and shout if you disagree. But on all three films, they are very produced, but in different ways. Um, and you know, on this particular film, the whole idea of the film is produced, yeah. but within each setup which we produced the the actualities and once you set up the frame the actuality is allowed to run yeah and that's real and authentic and true and uh, and in i think i felt in our particular case that this particular construct of writing poetry with lem at the helm um was likely to get the best most powerful most emotional actuality that we could get rather than just filming them observationally as a documentary about some kids in care and Coventry, that doing this produced construct would provoke more powerful footage. And and I think it, and I think it did. And also actually crucially for the kids taking part, they massively got something out of it. I mean, they've never performed anything anywhere and most of them have never written poetry before. I've got, we've got about another 15 minutes. Um, I've got, do you still want me to show my clip? 
Okay, so um, there was supposed to be someone else here, so I've been asked to show a clip. <laughs> um, so I'm going to not just interview myself, but um, I've just uh, I've just got a series going out at the moment on the W Channel with Stacey Dooley, and we spent I've spent quite a long time with her talking about how to evolve her her career beyond doing the sort of really hard hitting current affairs. Um, to do a, a series where it's still very documentary, it still has something important to say about who we are and where we are, and it's sort of but slightly lighter in tone, and so it could let her personality evolve a bit. So we um, constructed a format called Stacey Dooley Sleeps Over, and it's been compared a bit to the early Louis through Weird Weekends, but we um, basically got, we agreed with her the sort of family she'd like to visit, that felt that they had something interesting to say about modern family life. And she committed to properly sleep over. So she was in the kids' sleeping in the kids' bunk beds or on the sofa bed in the living room in each sort of 72 hours. But just as we were about to go into production, she went, can I just delay it a bit? I've just been asked to do this BBC One show, which obviously turned out to be Strictly. So. We had to wait for that to finish, and then we had to wait for her to do the tour because she won. And so we went from her being fairly unavailable to being hardly available <laughs> at all. So she was very much across producing it in terms of signing off the stories, but then she was back-to-back -back working, and so she would turn up on the Friday for the 72 hours. She'd send her a briefing document, and we went, we're just going to make a virtue out of this. We have 72 hours. She would literally knock on the door. She would never have met them before. We hadn't filmed anything before, and we followed her on her shoulder as she went into various <laughs> And for the next 72 hours, we sort of shot everything. But we had a brilliant series producer who was there with our director and our AP shooting, who was producing the story as it were unfolded. And we, we did produce it a lot. We thought, how does this story take us into the bigger community or whatever? So we did plot out stories, but then Stacey pretty much just was there, and we followed her. So this, this episode just went out last week. It was with a family called the Saccone Jollies, which is a condensed version of the two surnames of the parents. And they are one of the UK's most popular YouTube families. And they're quite controversial. They have posted everything about their family, their four kids, for the last 10 years. And they, they now do it every 48 hours, but pretty much their kids have been filmed every day for their whole lives. From the moment they were born, literally, as the mum's water breaks, the, the dad's got the camera out filming. Wow. Um, so they're quite controversial. Um, it was it was sort of complex in that way that you are you're sort of you're filming them and they're filming you, and and we had very little control over him. Um, but it also because she <laughs> played ball with him in that way, it kind of meant that they broke down barriers with them. They started to be really really honest with her about the impact on them and their family life and then the mum started saying how you know she gets a moment with her and she's like to be honest I'd sort of quite like it if we didn't have to do this anymore and so it was, sure. they actually were really within that 72 yeah. hours they started to really um, how old are the kids? they are really young they go up to about seven and the youngest one was less than a year old when I, we were filming I, it but they're not signing like I think they're going to grow up these kids and start suing their parents saying I didn't yeah. want to be on the internet from birth. And oh, yeah, and that's so we had, and that that is a really big issue. So between the making of it, and because it went out on YouTube, we started getting loads of letters from. There's a lot of they have a lot of critics, obviously, mm -hmm. and they were going, 
have you read this report on the impact on YouTube? So obviously that's also been a story that's mm. been unfolding mm. as before the prenatal came out. But of course she then, Stacey does sort of go to them, I can see that this is a big business for you and that you have no idea about the impact on your kids. So they, in the moment, mm. there was quite an active mm. dialogue. But you, nice. you know, when you're in that 72 mm. hours, you need to peel back the layers and it sort of... And plot it out. Yeah. And was your director talking to Stacey all the time, sort of giving it, like asking, I mean, how do they, the dynamic yeah. in so the house, know, they like, sleep on the bottom... Bunk. Now in this one, she had they've got a big house, right. they've got seven bedrooms, so she had her own room. Right. And so you sort of have. Would he sneak in and give her hints oh, yeah. of what they would talk about? So or? they were there. The, the, obviously, they were there filming it. So the the directors, other director or the AP, would always sneak over as well, so that we, she wouldn't be left on her own. Right. But yes, yeah, so there's lots of. So she sort of made a pact with the families that she wouldn't say much about them off camera that she wasn't prepared to say to them. But obviously, she'd be in her own going. Oh, so you filmed it off camera, giving interviews like in the house, right? Yeah. Right. So they, yeah, they'd follow Stacey upstairs, and they'd have. So what do you think was going on? And she'd be like, "Oh my god, look, it's right. now, it's now." So right. she was sort of watching it as it was unfold, and then she'd go down and go. And she sort of was like, "Look, you know, how do you think your kids are responding?" And, she, and they went out for a day with the kids, and she started saying to the kids, "How do you feel? Do you like doing the videos?" And they're like, "No." <laughs> She's like, "That's <laughs> oh, they're just saying that." <laughs> so yeah. they um, yeah, so. She was there with them the whole time, but we all the interviews with her were shot on. Did the she come up with her own questions, or did, did, I mean, how does that work? How does she interact with the director? Is she just? Did the director give her a hint of where to go or topics? Yeah, yeah or? so we had we had also our series producer there, so we plotted it with sort of ways to ask the questions and things that might prompt the scene, and we'd we'd make sure there were moments where she would go off with the different members of the family, so she'd have them on her own, and we'd sort of. We, would, we actually had a little caravan outside oh, wow. where we could pop out and go, okay, so let's have So we did have a live feed? Not glamorous. No, you didn't have a live feed. Oh, sorry, we need to go to the mic for it. Um, okay. Yeah, so um, we could carry on with this. Then we bit throw to the floor. So first of all, this one here. Hi, thanks very much um, to you all. Um, my question's mostly for Amy about um, sort of kids. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really, really great. I loved it. Oh. Um, uh, but just to sort of expand on the sort of duty of care question yes. yeah. um, you were talking about, um, with uh, social media, yes. how much do you kind of, um, especially with young people, mm. how much do you kind of intervene in the aftermath of the um, film coming out with kind of supporting the young people and the reactions they might get on social media that you can't necessarily control? Well, that's a really good question and it's a perennial anxiety, I think, for Everyone all producers <laughs> because you can't intervene. We're generally, you can't and you don't. Um, but you can, what we do, and we do particularly with kids, you warn them from the beginning from the beginning of, you know, when you're telling them about the programme, you warn them that when it goes out, you, you know, you can't control social media and people might say some things that we can't control. Um, they have just got to remember, um, you know, what the message is. And you just keep talking to them over a period of months and, and are often with them when it goes out. But you also, I think one way to try and mitigate that um, I've had crews that have gone to watch a program when uh, I think I think it was on Bedlam. I can't remember when um, when the program was going out. And so when social, you know, if they were looking at social, you advise them not to look at social media. But if they are looking at social media, they're not on their own. So you're with them to try and help. Also, 
boost them and support them um, and and talk down any horrible personal comments that people might be making. Um, you also try and bump up a real circle around them of people who watch the film before it goes out too. I mean, it's something that I've done a few times on programmes. Again, we did it on Bedlam, where you don't just show the child and their parents in, in another situation or their social worker or their foster parents, the programme. You might also take a small group of their friends from school and you might not necessarily show them, you might show them some clips and you try and make uh, or build a circle of support and excitement um, and control the way in which the sort of iron ring around them is, is watching and perceiving them in the programme so that they, they've got support not just from you but from people around you. But on something like Super Kids, there are so many people, mental health, they're mental health workers, they're social workers, um, uh, in fact, whole mental health teams sometimes, they're foster parents. There are so many people who we have to get permission from to meet and even film them, let alone kind of actually broadcasting. You know, with, with all documentaries, generally, when a contributor is vulnerable, and this is kind of tenfold with a child, when a contributor is vulnerable, you're asking for their consent to be filmed, but then also for that footage to be broadcast. You have to be confident that at the time of broadcast, it's not going to be detrimental broadcasting a scene to that person. So on something like when you're filming people, so it's a very long rambling answer to your question, but when you're filming people with mental health issues, for example, and their well-being can really oscillate quite a lot, you might film a whole series like we did with Bedlam and it'd be really close to the wire. If somebody suddenly gets ill again and you think it's going to be damaging, that programme going out, you can't broadcast it. So you have, when you're making programmes with vulnerable people, you have whole teams of people at the broadcasters and the production team just monitoring very closely, are they okay? You know, who's going to be watching them? Is their mental health okay? Um, right up to the wire. And that can be quite scary, but you've got to do it. Do you feel as well, like with all the sites that we, we also have a layer of, Telly sites that work with doctors that you have as independent consultants. So we also had one on this actually, as we had an independent person who was there to mediate on this. Yeah. And they always sort of have you given them the talk of doom? And you you cannot reiterate enough to your contributors now. It's almost like the minute someone says yes, you go, Are you absolutely sure it's going to be terrible on Twitter? You know, and you and say you can't say it enough because they right up to the end you keep saying it's awful because you're trying to spend your whole life trying to persuade someone to be in a program, and then you've got to basically try and talk them. You I, know. I, I worked in a program with a celebrity who had a mental health disorder, and it was a program about the mental health disorder. Mm. And then that mental disorder got worse, mm. and it was just it was poor. Yeah. They didn't, you know, yeah. They didn't, you know. Yeah. So, so yeah. Should we get a few extra questions in? Sorry, I've been talking. One more. Yes, are you? Um, I'd like to ask Amy a question. Um, it's directed at Will as well. Um, I'm a researcher working in factual, but I particularly want to, to move into documentaries mm. and watching your clips was just fascinating. And um, one of the sort of things I've come up against is um, we don't have enough docs experience or we don't have enough experience talking to contributors um, in sensitive areas because it's um, access docs is something I'm particularly interested in, in doing. And I have done casting, but I'm in that catch-22, yeah. can't get a job without experience, yes. can't get experience without a job. And listening to you, yes. well, both of you unpacking mm. the levels of sort of care and bureaucracy and talking to people and 
getting those contribs to open up, trust you, allow those cameras to roll in and then dismount the aftermath on social media that you can't control. How, if you're sort of junior like me in the industry, do you begin to sort of go into that territory and allow someone to trust you to work on your programmes and give them the benefit of the doubt that they can start to build relationships and hopefully it's really tough it's really tough and it shouldn't be this tough because uh, you know none of us have done it until we've done it <laughs> um so i i mean i suppose if i was you i would lots of people in telly have quite big egos i would i would write to directors i would write to execs i'd write to the production companies of all of the access docs that you really love or, or you know the kind of you know sensitive docs that you really love and say could you you know you love that program could you you'd absolutely love to work on something like this could you come in and meet them could you come in and meet their talent manager you know you don't have experience in this particular area but you desperately would love to the fact is that on certain because you're a researcher um it's in some ways that's quite helpful because you know, on certain access documentaries, there might be budget for a producer and a researcher, but not a producer and an AP. So on the right programme or the right, um, you know, on the, and the right company, you should be able to get your foot on the ladder. But I would try and start meeting the companies that make that kind of thing and just watch as much as you can. Because I think the, I often interview, or over time have interviewed, you know, I'm sure we all have, if, you know, researchers and producers and APs and it's always amazing to me when they kind of come in and they haven't watched anything that that, that company that your company's mm -hmm. made it's a really basic and it's thing. really sure. basic it's like you, you're saying you're so passionate about it I mean, which bit did you, you love mm, what's your favorite documentary um oh you know one from 10 years ago so I think I would just try and meet find out the specific people who make the stuff you love and just you know, and that can be direct freelance directors. As, see if you can have a cup of tea with a freelance director, you know, because, you know, lots of people are really happy to meet up. Um, I think it's just trying to get into the right company. And I think a lot of people tend to get their first gig when they're in a company. They might be in a bigger company on something else, casting something else. They know you, they like you, they know you work really hard. They might be doing something different over there. You're more likely to get a job once they already know you. And be or, do it of films or do it yourself. Yeah, yeah. No, well, that's what I did. I didn't, I've never yeah. been a researcher, I've been an AP. Have you not? No. <laughs> That's a lot, James. <laughs> you know, and they just get You're a camera. You're quite unusual. You get a camera and you just sort yeah. of get access to something. You know, obviously there's loads yeah. of incredible charities that, that need yeah. people to tell yeah. their story and you help them and obviously, I think we're talking about it's just about being sensible. Yeah. I think they're big, big, Meet, meaty docs like these are quite yes. rare and to get a job if you've never done it on something like that is probably not going to happen but if you go and work on one of the bigger shows like that are established yeah and you so get that in and you get to be known so something like a big you know that's a really good point i would contact if i was you companies like the garden and um two four and companies that make big documentary series where there will be a budget and a role for researchers because things like or twenty thousand any or twenty thousand police custody they ha they're really sensitive I and mean, you've got to be incredibly sensitive and, and tactical about that. how you approach. Mm. But once you've got that credit and once you're you know the other brilliant thing is you'll suddenly meet fifty other people 
of all different oh God, layers who were, who were all freelancers who then all moved to different companies and so, exactly and then one of those will go to another company and say oh we knew a brilliant researcher because something else has been crewed up in a different company I mean that happens all the time I'm always asking APs and producers who have you worked with who's good give me were, give me your, give me their numbers something incredibly sensitive to someone who's ever done it before if you want them to have yeah. built, built their career up so they, mm. they're very you know, if you've worked on the floor of A&E and you've yeah. had to deal with but very... But documentaries are very democratic. You can just get a camera. Like, this is quite a traditional TV route to go yeah. that way. You know, you yeah, don't, yeah. you know, like, you don't the have to gorilla. do that. Well, like the, and you can edit yourself. <laughs> like yeah. the I mean, I cut my yeah. my first films in my room. I don't know how you started, but, yeah, you know, some of that. Yeah. you had the final cut and just you just crack on, you know. Yeah. I mean, look at some of the films yeah. that are in short films, yeah. you yeah. know, for Oscars and stuff like yeah. that. Not all of them are big Netflix ones. No. Some of them are people who literally just started filming. And especially when you're saying, like, stories, if it's really personal to you and you really understand it, you could probably offer something yeah, to that. Yeah, you can well, learn it. It's point, about yeah. being, you know, being rational and mm -hmm. lots of these charities do need help to make these mm -hmm. kind of films. Mm -hmm. Is there any other questions? Or do you want to Sorry, we're out. Anyway, thank you very much for coming. Thanks for joining us and remember you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts.